I swear, I swear by mass transit and, you know, being thrown in with with whoever happens to be on that bus or that train or that streetcar with you today because there are great lessons and great teachings and great suffering that you're going to look on too. That was educator, trainer, writer, and storyteller Ed Wolf. I'm Jeff, and this is Storied San Francisco. Every week on this podcast, we feature writers, doctors, bartenders, photographers, and other San Franciscans talking about living, working, and doing their thing here. It's a way to get to know your neighbors. Welcome to episode 39, part one. Ed loves mass transit. In this podcast, he takes us on a few rides on Barden Muni, the settings in a way for three different stories. Here's Ed. All my life I've lived in cities with mass transit. And I find it an endlessly fascinating experience to get on mass transit and be thrown in with people who you wouldn't encounter in any other way. Also, I am uh, was raised Catholic, and that word mass has got a lot of meaning to it for me. And then transit. So I've, I've told stories and played with the idea that you get on this train or on this bus and you, you're, you're transiting with people and like in a mass, something can happen that like turns into something else. So I really like mass transit and the stories that occur there. Uh, two of them that have happened recently that have been, been helpful to me about some of the terrible times we're living in with Donald Trump. Both happen on BART because I've, I've been going through a lot of dental work and my doctors are all downtown. So I walk down 24th Street, get on the BART, go downtown. So I was uh, in February, I guess, or March. March, it was raining so hard. I got on the train and was coming back from Powell Street Station. And I was sitting there, and while the train was moving, the door opened at the end of the car, and this young girl came walking up the aisle. And I mean, she was just a child herself, and she was carrying a baby that, like, hardly, I mean, it had clothes on, but this infant was sopping wet, and so was she, and she was just walking, and you know how sometimes, like, you're just not ready for the suffering that just appears in front of you. And there she was, just walking along. And I, she wasn't asking for money. She was just walking. And I was sitting next to this very well-dressed woman who, um, when the girl passed, just as she passed by, the woman leaned over and said, "Um, do you need some money? And the girl went, okay. 
And so the woman reached in and gave her some money. I had run out of the house. I didn't even have my wallet. I had my clipper card. So then the girl just kept going. And I, it was just one of those moments where you're just sitting next to a stranger. And I just turned to her and went, oh my God, sometimes it's just so hard to know what to do. And the woman went, yep. She goes, you know, sometimes I give people money. Sometimes I just bless them. Then the train stopped and she got off, got up and got off the train and the door closed and kept going. So I was thinking about that and I looked across and I was sitting next to a, across from this very be, kind of bedraggled older man that seemed to have his belongings in a big plastic bag and he was just looking at me and um, he gave me this like beatific smile and nodded his head as if maybe he had been hearing what we were talking about and his gaze was so intent I kind of had to like look up just to to break it and above his head was this latest ad for why you should come and visit Yosemite National Park and it said witness the beauty and boldness of winter and then I was at 24th Street Bart, and I just thought, if nothing else, if we can't give people money, if we can't bless them, if we can't interact with them, at least can witness it. I mean, I've told numerous people about this young girl and her baby and 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 I can tell it's an image that kind of draws people inside just for a moment because what can what can we do I want I'm going to write about her I want to write about that moment the power of witnessing so anyway, that's my one story about Bart. Then yesterday, I um, had to go back down again for a doctor's appointment. And uh, uh, five years ago, I had both of my knees replaced. So uh, I, I get around pretty good. But whenever I can take an escalator or an elevator instead of doing all the stairs, I do. So there's a the way I go down to Powell Street Station, when I come out, the elevator is right there. So I take the elevator. And in the last two months, every time I get on the elevator, there's a really nice person with a Muni, Muni a Bart uniform sitting on a stool with a clipboard, sitting in the elevator. And so I like to talk to people, and I say, hi, what are you doing? And he says, oh, we're, we're auditing the usage of the elevator and he's got a little check mark and he's like and I said well I'm 
I'm using the elevator because I'm, I have two uh, knee replacements. I think I he marks this little box off. So, I've, as I said, I've been having a lot of dental work. So I have to go down to Powell Street Bart about once a week now for several months. And every time I go, there's another person sitting in that little elevator with a clipboard. And I keep saying, wow, this is quite a survey. And yesterday I went down. Now it's been like over two months. And there's this young woman sitting there. And I said, um, wow, they're still auditing all the people who are riding this elevator? And when the door closed, she looked at me and she went, well, not really. So I said, well, what are you doing? And she had the clipboard and she had a pencil in her hand and she pointed like this over her head. And there's a little sign that says, please do not defecate or urinate in this elevator. And I was like, you're here to stop that from happening? And she said, yes. And then the door opened and I went to my dentist appointment. So, but I was thinking about it the whole time I was in the dentist chair and I thought, oh, I hope she's still there when I go back. So I get back down and there she is. So I get back on and I said, you know, I've really been thinking about this. Like, what are, what are homeless people supposed to do when they need to go to the bathroom? And she said, I don't know, but they're not peeing and pooping in here. So I said, well, I, I understand that. But like, really, they are people like you and I. What are they supposed to do? And she said, I don't know, sir. And then we just kind of stood there. And then she went, you know, what I'm doing, this has created a lot of jobs for a lot of people. We just were very quiet. And then I kind of left and she told me, have a nice day. And I walked away thinking, God, it's so, so complicated, right? It's creating some work for some people who would be not be working policing where homeless people can go to the bathroom it's it's complex all of these issues that we're trying to deal with it's 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 not it's not fair it's not real to just paint a broad stroke on it and like be mad at BART, for example, because they're paying people to sit in the elevators to keep them clean, because it does create jobs for people. On the other hand, I said to her, why doesn't BART like build some kind of a, uh, oh, what is the word for, uh, the French word for an outside bathroom? Anyway, build something at the top of all the elevators. I guess I'm just, anything that addresses the complexity 
of all of these challenges that we have seems to me to have value in it because it is complex. I had such a powerful, powerful um, experience on Muni about maybe 15 years ago. It has stayed with me. I've written about it. I haven't actually told the story about it, but for many years I was a HIV test counselor here in San Francisco. And um, a good deal, a good portion of that time was before there was the rapid test, which is here now. You go in and you can, uh, a counselor just has to do a little swab of your mouth, and in 20 minutes you've got your HIV result. But in the day, for most of the history of HIV test counseling, you would come in, you'd have a blood draw, and then you'd have to wait two weeks and come back to get your results. So I did that for many, many years. And um, because uh, across the United States there was such concern about confidentiality, many test sites in the big urban settings were anonymous. You could come in, get an HIV test, and be given your result, and no one would know except you and the counselor. No identifying anything, because that was such powerful information to have. So I used to do a lot of this, and I was doing this one afternoon at Health Center Number 1. People come in, they check in, they're given a number. The numbers are put over here and the counselors come out and go, number three, number four. So I took the next thing, I was at number nine, and the waiting room was full. And across the room, this boy stands up. And I say boy because he like he had a like a school uniform on and like a little backpack. He was an African-American boy. And in the state of California, you have to be 12 or older to get an HIV test. I knew he was older than 12, but he wasn't too much older than that. So this is the youngest person I've ever done HIV counseling with. So I, he comes in, he's very polite, he's very like, kind of looking down. I realize I'm a very big, tall, you know, I've got a lot of enthusiasm for HIV prevention, white man, and he's just a very quiet, literally, he has like a little insignia on his Catholic school insignia. So, you know, I asked him, like, what brought him in? He won't take an HIV test. He'd never had one before. I said, Is, did something happen that was of concern? He said that he liked to um, go down south of Market on Folsom Street, and there's a couple of like uh, bookstores down there where where you could go in and um, look at like Mister Leather magazine, and and there were also little um, booths where you could go back and put a quarter in and watch a little you know, video and. And he lived at home with his parents, kind of well-to-do part of the neighborhood of the city. 
and nobody knew that he did this. And one day he had gone down there, was looking at the magazines, and an older man kind of caught his eye and, and indicated back in the booth. Let's, and so he went, he went with him, and the guy gave him a blowjob. And so this kid got in the habit of going down there to connect with people. And the last time he had gone, he went into the back, went into a booth with someone, and it wasn't oral sex. The man, they started making out, and then the man had anal sex with him, and it was the first time this boy had ever been penetrated. And he was smart, and he knew about HIV, and it had hurt him, and afterwards there was like a little blood. So he knew, like, this could be a concern. So... I talked to him about condoms. I talked to him about is there any way he could imagine if he went back to the store again, to the bookstore, of reducing his risk. Like I tried to do HIV Prevention 101. And, um, and then we were done, and he went and got his blood drawn, and he has a little card, and he's going to come back in two weeks to get his results. So... You know, I probably have tested, I mean, I've worked with so many people with AIDS and tested, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of people. And there's no way to process all of that. It's, it's too much. But like, what I've noticed is, for many people like me who do this kind of intense caregiving for a living, every once in a while, somebody gets in. Like we're all supposed to have good boundaries and you don't take your work home with you. And But you know, this boy got in and I even took it to supervision and um, my supervisor was like, you know what? Through this one, being concerned about him, thinking about him, this is how you process the hundreds. It's fine. Good for you. You can still be moved by this. So I was actually like tracking like a week, 12 days, you know, and the results come back then, like a couple days before the client returns. And oh my God, it came back positive. So I met with my supervisor and like, this is gonna be in our history of the anonymous test sites. We don't remember giving a, a, a positive test result to a high school student. So sure enough, exactly two weeks later, 3.30 in the afternoon, come back out, number nine, he stands up in his little high school insignia in his little book bag and he comes in and he, and he sits down. All the people I work with, everyone are very professional. But of course, everybody was aware. He's back and what's about to happen. So he comes in, sits down. How are you doing? How have the last two weeks been? Are you ready for your result? He said, sure. And I told him, your result came back positive. So I've given a lot of positive results and people have 
lots of different reactions. And his was just very, he was so quiet. I could almost feel the wheels turning. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And so then I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go for this. What are, what are you going to do? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure. And he has no support. He has no network. Nobody knows he's gay. And we've been trained when someone has a positive result, you always, before the session ends, you always ask the same question. So, where are you going now? Well, I, I'm, I'm going to go home. How are you going to get there? Because people are in shock, so you could help to ground them. Well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to take the 48 Quintara, and he lived like out in Forestville or something. I said, okay, and who's going to be there? And he went, my mom, who knows nothing. So, because I had had time to go, I had all these referrals to like Hi-Fi, which was an HIV positive youth group, and like just to try to just bombard him with as much information as I could because it's an anonymous service. There's no way to do any follow-up. It's anonymous. And we have reasons, important you know, important reasons why this service is anonymous. But in situations like this, there's going to be no way to follow up. So, I give him his referrals, you know, and, you know, like, I mean, the big brother and me, I just wanted to just take him home. <laughs> but I couldn't do that. So, he took his referrals, he put them in his backpack, put his backpack on, and I walked him through the through the clinic at health center number one. And like every, all my coworkers were like just tracking us. And he kind of well, I walked him to the door and he went on out and there's I never forget there's these huge blinds there. And I just remember watching, I just watched him walking up to where he would catch the bus and and then he was gone so this boy was inside me like oh my god what happened how is he how's he doing you know and i expected to feel it for a couple days and then like a couple weeks I was still thinking about him I would bring it up in supervision we had support group and I would sit and just talk about him and it helped me to understand I'm having all these feelings for him because I can't have it for all the other people I've worked with so months go by another month couple months and just slowly, I stopped thinking about him. So, about, I don't know if it was a year later, but close to a year later, 
I was um, downtown San Francisco, and I got on the Muni uh, at Montgomery Street, and it was around rush hour, and the car was very crowded, and I and I. You know, I got on. There was no place to sit. I was just kind of standing there, hanging on to the thing. I don't remember what else, what I was doing down there. And I, you know, I just kind of like looked up, and there were a bunch of high school students at the other end of the car. And there he was. And he had his backpack, and he was talking to some girls that he was with. So, of course, we've all been trained that since this is all anonymous, like you don't even instigate eye contact. You don't do anything. So I quickly looked down. and um, But I was like shaking. It's like, oh, my God, it's him. It's him. And so I kind of like looked up again. Then I looked back down. And we're going through the different stops, and I'm going to get off at Castro Street. And I remembered he lived like in Forestville, so I knew he's going to go on. And just as we're pulling out of Church Street Station, I decided to look up again, and he, there he is. He's looking at me. So I just, I just was like, of course, I just wanted to go over to him and go, how are you? But I couldn't, so I just looked down. And then as we're pulling into Castro Street Station, I looked up again, and he was still looking at me. And I wish I had the words. I wish I could capture how he signaled to me with this nod and just a little bit of a smile that he was fine. And I stepped off the train, and it went on through the tunnel. And I just remember coming up and walking down Castro Street. And um, feeling so relieved and thankful that I had seen him again and was reminded that people go through these big experiences that we all get to be a part of, or sometimes we go through them ourselves. And in many, many cases, people make sense of it. And they move on, they figure out what to do, and they're fine. Music for the podcast is by Otis McDonald a.k.a. Joe Bigale. Film photography is by Michelle Kilfeather. You can keep up with Storied San Francisco by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The website is storiedsf.com. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, we'd really appreciate it if you would rate and review the show. Please email us with comments and suggestions. The address is storiedsf at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Check back tomorrow to hear Ed tell tales of survival and kindness.